Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm going to skip all of the throat clearing and just get to it because I've been waiting to do this podcast for years now. I've been, I've been, I've been demanding um, that we get a rat guy on here. When I say a rat guy, I don't mean like uh, sort of a half man, half rat. Um, I mean, an expert about rats. And um, I, th- I find the subject fascinating. I grew up in New York City and um, we finally have our guy. Um, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Michael Parsons. He's a visiting research scholar, scholar at Fordham University. Um, his research focuses on predator-prey interactions, rodentology, and molecular ecology. Uh, he's published dozens of scientific articles, um, and I've been reading a bunch of his stuff, so I can I can attest already that uh, he more than clears the bar of rat guy. So uh, with that, Dr. Parsons, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for your interest in rats. So, <laughs> um, uh, well, my interest of rats is because I'm a strange person, and my interest is purely on the amateur level. You've gone pro. How did you get into rats? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't think anyone wakes <laughs> up one day and says, ah, oh, you know, I really want to go into rats. But, you know, um, I was uh, educated in Australia, so I did my postdoctoral studies there and I did my PhD there. And it was the amazing flora and fauna of the, of the, of the country that drew me to Australia. After a decade there, I got a position in the U.S. and it just happened to be in New York City. And um, I had to give up marsupials, and, and in particular, macropods, and kangaroos, and wallabies. And, and um, geez, what am I going to study? And um, I don't know if it was a joke on me or if, uh, or if some of my senior um, colleagues are really serious about it. But they're like, you know, we have got a problem with rats in the Northeast. And there's just like this open, um, it's completely open. No one's doing it. And I should have said, mm-hmm. wait, there's got to be a reason. No one's doing this research. <laughs> and, but instead, I thought, yeah, it's wide open. Let's go for it. And so I made this transition from Australian pests, if you will, um, to um, New York City pests. And, uh, yeah. So when you say, when you say uh, someone said to you the Northeast has a problem with rats, serious question, where don't they have a problem with rats? Well, I mean... In the Northeast, in Philadelphia, D.C., um, and New York City, I mean, Baltimore, these are like the rat capitals, you know, uh, and this is because they're primarily plagued with the Norway rat, the brown rat, sewer rat. These are um, highly um, dense populations of people, and lots of people 
draw lots of rats. In areas of the, of the nation and the world where people are a bit more spread out, there aren't really rat problems, right? So it's like you get the occasional exterminator called out, but you don't really have to worry about your health and your business is burning down or disease is being transmitted. But when you put people literally on top of one another, building vertically to get more people into a given area, it's like rats are um, really important there. Right, but that, what, I, what I mean by the question is, I mean, again, you know this stuff better than I do, but the global population is just urbanizing, right? Either the rise of the mega cities, you know, is there a city in the world that doesn't have, and, and, and problem is a, you know, I don't want to be judgmental, let's just say, uh, let's just say significant rat population. Is there a city in the world that outside of maybe Siberia where it gets so cold that doesn't have a significant rat population? There are areas in the coastal regions that do not have Norway rats. They have roof rats, which are very different. And roof rats tend to live high. They do not live, they live, tend to live up in the attics and the trees. And they're not really, people aren't really aware of them, right? Because you don't see them scurrying around the streets. And um, they're not in the sewers. They're not uh, transmitting diseases as such. So I would say cities in the coastal regions um, do not have the same rat problems that we find in the Northeast. And in fact, when I engage people from coastal areas or from Midwest, and well, other than, say, Chicago and Detroit, they kind of look at me like, you know, what's the big deal about rats? You know, so, yeah. So, but you would think there would be some significant rat stuff just since rats sort of hang out in ships and shipyards and like boats, right? I mean, like, it seems weird to me that they're not a coastal problem because I would just assume that every major port city has a significant rat thing going on. Right. So, um, right. They have, nor they have roof rat populations in the, in the tropical uh -huh. areas, more tropical areas. And roof rats really aren't as apparent. They're not as visible, if you will. So people aren't aware uh, that there are many, as many rodents as there actually are. So, um, so basically when we talk about city rats, right? Ratatouille rats, uh, uh, rats from the movie Ben. Um, we're talking about the Norway rat, right? And the Norway rat, I mean, you tell me, but it's it's not from Norway. It's like a Asian, Mongolian, kind of Turkmenistan kind of guy, right? Um, why do we call it the Norway rat? Why why is it supplanted all other terrestrial, non-roof-based rats? <laughs> Um, what is so special about the Norway rat? So I should back up. I'm not actually a molecular person. Uh, some of my colleagues are. So I don't have the uh, strict genetics background that some of these folks have. And they're rewriting the history of rats all the time. Uh -huh. So um, I know from, it's sort of a given that the steps of Northern, the steps, S-T-E-P-P-E-S, not, 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 not right. like stair steps, but the steps of uh, like uh, Northeastern Asia, as you said, Mongolia, they would have originated there. And then they would have spread out and flourished along with people, um, along with the, um, as we became industrialized. And as, you know, once we started developing stores of uh, food, large storages of food, and we came traveling and uh, settling the rest of the world, um, the rats just had a trail to follow. And that's when they became associated with people. And uh, we're now commensal. They literally would not be, uh, many rats really would not survive without people. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about this. Um, in your writing and in, in other places, I keep seeing this 
they're all these sort of scary illustrations of the problem of rat population, right? Where two rats with proper mating conditions and ample food supply can lead to 15,000 rats inside of, you know, three months or six months or whatever it is. I know you say you're not a molecular guy, but it would seem to me with that rate of reproduction, and let me back up. Does that assume incest, right? Are these, are these, are the, are the baby litters mating with each other or are they finding, are they bringing new guys? Um, I mean, are they Targaryens? Are they just sort of going on, going at it with each other? How that, those illustrations, are they purely mathematical models or is that a real world thing? It is a mathematical model and I've never actually thought about it quite like you have just presented it. No, <laughs> it's just like theoretically, if all the conditions are right and if you have an adult female rat and she is somehow impregnated, that assumes another rat, then right. she can have like, you know, seven or eight offspring in six to eight weeks. And those offspring can each become reproductively mature in another six to eight weeks. And assuming those offspring find a mate, then literally now you get into the you know, thousands per year. But that really depends on resources being available. But, but there's just so much information in that mathematical model. Like that's the secret to rat control right there in that model. So, um, okay, so assuming it's not incestuous in any way, and these are all healthy, proper, bourgeois relationships, um, you'd still think that given that the Norway rat did not originally evolve to be an urban thing that you would start seeing, I guess the term is speciation, right? Where like that the Norway rat of today, if you have, if it's, if it's as your model would imply just off the back of my top of, you know, back of the envelope kind of thing, it would imply hundreds of thousands of generations of rats in the last three or four centuries or five centuries since the growth of cities and all that kind of stuff. Are we seeing evidence that the, that their Norway rat is actually what, what we call the city rat is actually a, a new sort of offshoot of the original kind of rat population. Is it is evolving is what I'm saying or asking. Right. You know, um, Bobby Corrigan, you know, they refer to him as the rat czar. And uh, <laughs> I received my, uh, you know, opening uh, bit of learning from, from Bobby when it comes to um, rat rodentology. And uh, Bobby's famous for saying that, you know, rats are probably the most perfect creature, you know, in the world. And, and what he means by that is they're the most adaptable creature. Um, and that means their, their, their genetics are, are varied and they have the ability to survive in a number of conditions and they will take advantage of whatever conditions they're given. So rats have this tremendous amount of variability, wild rats, not, not the laboratory rat that we're used to thinking about, but the true wild rats, which people know so very little about. Um, so we know there's an incredible amount of adaptation that occurs and um, in whatever conditions we put forth for them, they may end up right, surviving and even um, proliferating in those conditions. Mm. So I guess to get back to your question, uh, the Norway is really, um, no one knows, and it's not, it's not going to be very satisfying to you or your listeners, but it's really hard to study wild rats. So the only thing the genetics guys can do is get uh, tail snips from rats that are already dead. And who knows if the population of already dead rats really represents the true population of rats. So we don't know. I want to come back to why it's hard to study wild rats in a second, because that's a fruitful line of inquiry. 
But <laughs> let's back up for a second. What is the difference between? Uh, so one of the things I learned from uh, a piece that you were quoted in um, is that rat population, rat colonies, basically there's the alpha who's like the, the boss, the the betas who are all hang around, right, and then. There's an omega who's basically the loser who's essentially ostracized. I guess the question is, is like, let's flip it around. Before we can figure out, before we talk about what is the, the difficulties of studying wild rats, what do we know about wild rats? I mean, like, what do we know about their colonies, their organization, and, and sort of how do we know the stuff that we do know? Because presumably we do know some things, right? Right, right, right. So um, I, I will go back to your comment about um, alphas, betas, and omegas. So I was slightly misquoted, just a little bit on that one. So actually, the omegas, to me, they're not really the losers. And I actually went on social media and tweeted out immediately, they're not really losers. Um, they, are the, they are the animals that are um, not perfectly adapted for that particular um a uh, group of animals at that particular time, but they still have, uh, you know, the, the same amount of variability in the genes that they're carrying. And what they are, these are the animals that are more likely to disperse to other organizations. So these animals are not really losers, depending on conditions, right? Like in COVID, when a lot of restaurants shut down, the omegas were the winners. Uh, the, the, the alphas and, and uh, betas, the ones that kept the old um, food sources, they dried up. The omegas were out on the move already. Finding, but they were ejected from the colonies, but now they're the founders. So I think omegas should be looked at as the ultimate winners when there's environmental change. Sort of like the lone wolves of the rat world, right? They break out from the pack and start a new new pack. Yeah, and it's simplistic, but then that gets me back to how much of this is educated guesses, and how much of this do I know that I know because I've seen it. And uh, that's a question that um, is uh, really interesting because a few years ago, a pest management group, they really begged me. They said, you know, we really want to know what this, the, the life, that secret, the life of a rat, the hidden life of a rat, what it's like. Can you show us? And I mean, we did so many, we took so much effort in trying to like, we used a Fitbit at one, uh, uh, a triaxis <laughs> accelerometer. And, mm -hmm. but of course, you know, we have to be, you have to consider the ethics, the animal ethics of the situation. We're not just going to use the rats as like, you know, animals rats. that have no feelings. I mean, right. Well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, we'll get into more of the ethics of animals too, because <laughs> the more you work with them, the more fondness you develop for them. Um, because they're actually quite intelligent and, and clever and, and sometimes affectionate and really cool. But um, those experiences I do have. But as far as do I know alphas, betas, omegas, can I recognize them? I mean, this is the kind of thing that we're learning a lot from the 1940s and 50s through some of the classic research. In those days, before animal ethics um, issues, um, uh, there were actual colonies, captive colonies of wild rats. And so folks literally observed them. Um, they took them out of the wild and observed them in captive conditions. It wasn't perfect because you change the behavior when you change the environment, but they tried to recreate colonies. And that's where they learned that, oh yeah, you know, there's alphas, betas, omegas. And, um, you know, omegas are more likely to be uh, ejected from colonies and, and to find new food, the alphas get their share of the food and the share of the, uh, the females, that kind of thing. I mean, so when you're, when you're sort of correcting the record uh, about omegas not being losers, is it possible that it's not so much that they're rejected is that they reject that they want to strike out on their own for their own reasons and not necessarily because they weren't accepted into the colony? You know, I mean, like, 
Some people just, you know, like second sons in Europe would come to America because they wanted to make their own mark on the world. Yeah, I, I don't know. I tend to think if if an animal had the choice, they would choose the top, the, the best resources. There would be this really strong drive. I've got the, if there's a food source, I'm going to be the first to tap that food source. Or if there's a uh, really uh, symmetrical female. And, and we learn to look at rat symmetry and find out what an attractive rat was versus an unattractive rat at one point. And, uh, you know, if another rat can see what we can see, I can imagine it would vary, it would choose, you know, it would be not as likely to, to strike out on its own. But, you know, genetics are varied in wild populations, so who knows? The lab rats that people use, um, or the, I shouldn't say people, but scientists use, right? If you're, if you're just experimenting on lab rats for fun, you got some problems. Um, but uh, what, um, what are those rats and how do they differ from the wild populations of rats? Right. So a lot of research um, performed on laboratory rats is based on male rats of a juvenile age, and they're based on animals that have been inbred for a number of generations. Mm -hmm. And so when we are trying to do medical work on a population, or we're, we're literally using rats as a surrogate to understand human. Um, right. how humans will respond. It's a bit of a shame because humans are in this real world environment with many contexts and rats are, you know, juvenile males of a specific, you know, they don't have any this variability left. They're just one particular group that aren't even representative of the entire group. So the question mm -hmm. is, what do we know from laboratory rats? And um, unfortunately, um, not as much as we would like. So there's actually a lot of momentum now within science to develop natural bioassays, biological assays, where uh, scientists uh, can go out in the field and um, study rats that are varied in their behavior. So um, to circle back to the, the, the question you asked, um, with that context out of the way, I, I like to use the analogy that a lab rat is, um, an, a lab rat to a um, wild rat is sort of analogous uh, to a chihuahua, to a, uh, to a wolf. You know, I don't think that's mm -hmm. embellished at all. They're entirely different. They look different. They act different. One is docile. It's like almost like an automaton, a robot. The other is this, you know, this intelligent creature that's been um, wired through a number of experiences. And, um, yeah, they're just, um, they're, they're far different than what, what we find in the laboratory. So, I mean, everything I read says that we're constantly upgrading our assessment of how smart rats are. Um, tell me, how smart do you think they are? What is the, um, you know, what are the, what are the sort of indicators of rat intelligence that make you say, okay, this animal really is much smarter than we might think? Ironically, it's going to sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but ironically, <laughs> we get this information from the laboratory. <laughs> so if juvenile males are showing such incredible intelligence and um, social justice, and I'll talk a little bit about that, um, some of these facets to the personalities, if they're showing that, then you know the wild rats are just that plus a magnitude more. So from the laboratory, we have studies like Kelly Lambert at the University of Richmond, and you've probably seen um, just in your uh, cursory look at the subject, that uh, she was able to teach uh, laboratory rats to um, drive little robot cars. And that was really mm -hmm. cool. But that's just one type of in intelligence. But rats have also been shown to demonstrate social justice. So rats 
um, will forego a, a food reward, a chocolate reward, if you will, um, to help another rat in need. And so we're getting a lot of this coming forward in, in droves. And um, so as people study more and they're more open-minded subject and they have more clever ways of looking at behavior rats, they're finding out that laboratory rats are smarter and smarter and smarter. And then when guys like me go in the field and look, I think there's fewer than a dozen groups uh, that do research like I do uh, around the world. And I, I think I know most of them, if not all of them. And um, it, it's um, we don't see scores and scores of rats at any one moment. We're, we're studying very small populations. Um, Instead of the hundreds and thousands you see in the lab, it might be the dozens. But even among the dozens, uh, among the populations we study, um, you see some really interesting behaviors, inquisitive behaviors, uh, changes in personality. We microchip our, our rats. So we're able over time to see how their behavior changes and uh, how varied those behavior is. And, and we have an old rat that used to, um, we used to capture them and then we would transfer them from the rat trap, live trap, and uh, slide them out in, uh, we would place the trap into a, a tank filled with isofluorine, which is, uh, you know, um, to anesthetize them. And um, once they're inside that tank and after they fall asleep, we would gently slide them out into the tank. <laughs> and once they were in the tank, you know, we would microchip them. And so we had one rat that um, for his food reward, he would allow himself, I say allow himself to be trapped repeatedly because he was clearly <laughs> smart enough, right, to, to yeah. avoid drafts. But he allowed, I guess he liked the treatment we gave him. And um, uh, that's the only thing I could come up with because we could capture him over and over and over. And this old guy, if he were done, he would have been predated. You know, he would have, mm -hmm. this is a large colony of rats. He, if he were not too cluey, he would have been lost. So he, he would sit around and watch while we, um, while we microchipped his, his uh, conspecifics, the other rats in his colony. And he seemed, I mean, he would sit there and watch the process. And uh, there was, you know, old Stumpy right at our feet watching the show. So that <laughs> left an impression. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, uh, my, my in-laws had, or from Fairbanks, Alaska, and they had um, two labs that would routinely go out and hunt porcupines. And, um, and they'd come home with quills all through their lips and stuff. And it was horrible. And my only theory was like, other than them being really dumb dogs, um, was that this was like drug seeking behavior <laughs> because like they were, um, they would go to the vet for the emergency and get all shot up with morphine so they could get these things out of their mouths. I'm not saying that's what's going on, but it just reminded me of that. Um, yeah, I listened to one um, uh, podcast. I can't remember with another rat guy who was saying how he's seen videos from pest control people that send them videos of rats like dropping sticks on rat baits to trigger the bait, the trigger the <laughs> trap and then get the treat, um, which is, you know, that tool use puts you in higher, you know, it moves you up quite a few slots on the animal intelligence scale. Um, but all right. So in, you talk about predated, um, uh, you know, one of the things, because I'm also just sort of an animal guy in general. I loved the return of hawks and all the sort of wild birds, um, you know, in New York City. Uh, it was I remember it was such a huge deal growing up in New York when those two that mating pair of hawks camped out on Fifth Avenue above the zoo, and everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, what are wild animals doing here?" And now they're they're birds of prey all over the place um, around New York City. Do most of the Norway rats that you study do they actually 
spend a lot of time worrying about predators other than humans? So I think um, when people in the city, any city, but particularly New York, when they see rats scurrying around, they think this is just the way rats are. And they kind of typecast them. Those rats, they'll jump up on you in the subway. They will take the subway home. And we stereotype their behavior based on what we're seeing from a very, very small minority of rats. The majority of rats are more secretive. They're more conservative. They don't want to be predated by the red tail hawks. Uh, they don't, they do, like you said, they do want to avoid people because people represent a threat, even if we think they're fearless around us. It's just a very minority that are. So um, this, this group of rats that remain unseen and unknown and untested, they're living out there just like a new species of organism in the, in the ocean that uh, we just haven't been able to tap into because we can't go deep enough to study them. They're, they're a little bit like that because... Um, we wouldn't know if we saw one, right? And they remain so hidden from the public um, that we're only seeing just, uh, you know, scraping the tip of the iceberg. So we don't, I mean, are you saying that we don't even know? The first thing. How much about <laughs> they're being preyed upon by um, other species, you know, in, their, in, 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 the, in the home colonies, as it were? Well, we know animals that if they've taken a bait, like a rodenticide, that's a very, mm -hmm. very, it's a slow, agonizing death. And they mm -hmm. get sick and almost exude a drunken behavior when, when they uh, consume rodenticide. So, if that, so once they're outside the burrow, and uh, if indeed a higher ranking rat has consumed the bait, maybe they use mm -hmm. lower rate, ranking rats to take the risks. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, at that point, you know, they are, um, you, you can see those animals, obviously. Um, well, it, it depends on the, it depends on the individual, doesn't it? If they, um, if they exude this drunken behavior, they're out more where you can see them more, but then they're more concerned about their internal dynamics than they are predators right so some of the rats we see there's like this already this bias against their observing natural behavior we're not it's mm -hmm. not natural behavior yeah but like so I, I guess the question is in this i live in the suburbs of washington dc now i mean i'm technically in the city but it's as suburban as you're going to get and we don't see a lot of rats here like if i go down to downtown dc you see a lot of rats um um but out here we see a lot of you know, we see a lot of foxes. We see a lot of rabbits. Um, I'm still in the city, um, but it's, it's, we see owls, and all sorts of like uh, more variation up at vertically in the food chain, right? You know, deer and all that kind of stuff. And then in, if I go down to, I remember one time walking through DuPont Circle, which is this major sort of, sort of the equivalent of like Washington Square or something like that, or Bryant Park in, in New York. and I was like, wow, the wind is, I don't feel any wind, but it looks like the wind is blowing really strong. And then I realized it was just an enormous number of rats that were moving across grass. And I don't know what scared them out of where they were supposed to be or what, but, um, um, and so, you know, while there's obviously going to be food waste out where I live, um, you don't see, you just don't really see very much rat activity because I assume there's, there's too much work involved and there's too much risk with predators and, and whatnot. Um, are there urban predators that we know of that go after rats other than, you know, humans and, and, and essentially red tailed hawks? Are we seeing like coyotes go after them or wild dogs go after them? 
I assume New York's not going to have any snakes. So like what, what are in the, in the course of things, are humans basically the only predators that, that rats spend a lot of time well, it working depends around? if there's alternative foods or not. Um, so uh-huh. most, and, and I'll use feral cats as, as an example. So um, there's a lot of misunderstandings about cats. And again, this hadn't, I think this had ever been shown until our research, and it was just by chance, serendipitously, that we just left the cameras rolling when a colony of, uh, you know, feral cats, about seven of them, happened to um, uh, live quite close to one of our rat colonies. And we just decided to see what would happen. What we found was that the cats um, would not um, really pay much attention to the rats if the cats were well-fed. And I think that's the thing. Cats have a a resource of food. Why take the risk, like you said? And so um, that's why I think, you know, cats may be a good predator of mice, which weigh, say, you know, 65 grams, but at the most, but rats weigh about 10 times that much. Certainly large Norway rats can weigh 10 times that much. They've got claws and they're feisty and they can jump. And it would take a lot of energy for a predator to bring down a Norway rat. So if you've been fed, if you've got some other food source, why bother? Why take the risk? Because rats transmit a number of diseases to humans, but don't assume that any animal that predated a rat would be immune to those diseases. They wouldn't be, you know, so there's risk and animals understand risks. They're, you know, they're hardwired to understand risk. And that's why I think that there's so much food in the city in areas that attract rats, that there would be food sources for animals that were predated. But yes, coyotes, um, we do find rats and coyote scat and also um, terriers. You know, uh, in New York City, there's a group of terriers that go out and they rat hunt. And, um, you know, they're quite prolific with the number of rats they catch. But we've already ran the mathematical model about 15 minutes ago. And so we know that if that food source remains, they're just going to build that population back up. So it's just it's sport for the puppies and it's nothing more. Um, I do remember reading about a few years ago at a housing project in Chicago. They set up these outdoor essentially dens for feral cats. And um, it did, at least the piece I read, said it it reduced the rat population, though the biologists, if I'm remembering it right, said it wasn't so much because the cats hunted all the rats, is that the, the rats were just like, there's so many other places we could be, why be here with a bunch of feral cats peeing on everything, leaving their markers, let's just move to the next housing project down the road. And um, which, you know, if I live in the housing project that has their feral cats, I'm pretty psyched about that. You know, I mean, like deterrence is good. Um, if you don't want to have rats around, you know, your kids. and Right. So there were some misunderstandings about that and we were misquoted a few times on that. So that was our research. And what we found was, oh, the what? Cats, oh, good. Oh, good. yeah, the cats did change the rat's behavior. Um, but what happened was, um, the rats didn't go anywhere. They were still there. They just spent less time in the direct path that the cats are traveling. So um, there, there might be where, on the one hand, I can say cats had no impact on the rat population. And in a way, that's true. But the cats change the rat behavior. So if you're a person on the other end and you see cats and you see no rats, you may go, hey, it's working. But is it really working? Because if there's a food source, you've got a real stable colony of rats already present to take that food. But if you just like the emotional confidence of not going outside and seeing a rat in the same area where you see the cat, then you would feel good about it. But they're there. 
and I, I think that's what the conclusions were. And a lot of people said that, you know, some of the people that love, and I, I, I'm a cat, you know, I like cats. I like all animals. I'm like you, you know, but uh, the people who, um, you know, were um, supporting the feral cat initiatives, uh, you know, they were using this as evidence to support feral cats, but I, I think this is a stretch. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I honestly, I didn't know that you were the ones that were doing the research at school. Um, so, uh, you keep saying how we don't have a really that the that the rats that we see the omega rats the lone wolf rats the um the, the atypical rats are the ones we tem- tend to see right and that the, the 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 colonies tend to stay out of the limelight they got their own thing going um we see the rat from ratatouille in the kitchen we don't see the whole colony that he's from because they're 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 laying low. So what is our best guess of what the actual, say, rat population in New York City is? Um, or any major city. I mean, like when I was a little kid, the New York Times reported that for every New Yorker there were three rats. And my dad was like, Where are my three rats? Um <laughs> do we have a ratio? Do we have any kind of good grasp on the population numbers yeah and and there's nobody really counting rats and um you know they're out of sight and they're they're relatively small and they uniform they're crepuscular you know they come out only in the day in the mornings and evenings for the most part and they um they look the same right they're uniform they're dark how, you know how and they don't wear a little even... sticker after the census person talks to them that says, I talked to the census, right? Exactly. So. And, and and not enough of them even wear microchips because if we had microchips, you know, we could bleak their presence at different areas and get a little better mm-hmm. idea about where they're traveling and, and where they're going. But um, I, so I've heard, um, I've heard really conservative estimates and some, some researchers really like the conservative estimates. And then others, they use the upper limits um, to make a point, you know, and I've heard numbers as low as like 50,000 all the way up to 32 million rats. 50,000 total number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some crazy number, but it depends on where you're at, right? Because they're hyper-focused. Rats are really, you know, and they're they're hyper-concentrated, I should say, in specific areas, right? Where there's more restaurant activity and less... um, where our hygiene suffers, our social hygiene, uh, sometimes we call it urban hygiene, in those areas where, where we're not as quick to um, clean up after ourselves, those areas tend to um, proliferate rats. And so maybe we have 20 per person in those areas. I was waiting to interrupt you because I didn't want to interrupt you. But like when you first said the range was between 50,000 and 32 million, I thought you were talking about the total population. And I was like, that sounds wildly low. And then at least the 50,000. Um, but you're talking about per person. No, 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 no. I mean, people who are not around a lot of rats, people who are not, they've not seen areas where there might be a, a large number of rats per person. They're more likely to come up with these really low numbers. They, they take this swath of area around them and they're not sampling. They're not sampling. It's not a large enough sample size because how do you sample a city? You know, and it's all of its intricacies. Do you go to the parks? Do you go to the beaches? Do you go to the um, restaurants? How do you even begin to develop a sample size to estimate? So, yeah, so yeah, people have come up with some absurdly low numbers. And I think I saw 50,000 pop up once. And I think they were just trying to combat the people that were saying, yeah, up to 32 million. I think when I first wrote about the topic, I, yeah. Okay, but uh, uh, when you, when you said, 
I'm still confused though. I mean, up to 32 million total. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And so there are people who think that there are only 50,000 rats in New York City? They're in the minority, but I just wanted to throw that number out there because it shows, I think that number, it shows, and there's only a few, right? But I think it just shows the dramatic difference in, in, uh, in our perception based on our experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would assume there are 50,000 squirrels in Manhattan, you know? Um, um, and speaking of which, uh, just yeah. on that point, um, so... When you think of New York City, you think of essentially two animals. Um, well, three if you you know include people from New Jersey. But um, uh, no, if you think basically two two animals, you think of rats and you think of pigeons. Um, I would throw squirrels in there. These are like the three wildish <laughs> animals of of of, of, of most major cities. Um, um, is there any interaction? Is there any competition for resources between them? Do they care that the other exists? Is there any symbiosis or of any kind? Or is it just, they're three independent animal populations? Hmm. So I used to see rats interacting a lot with pigeons in Columbus Park in uh, lower Manhattan. And that was really cool. Um, they, they ended dry ice bombing the park, right? And uh, the rat population was almost completely exterminated. They focused so heavily on it and, and removed the source of the of the uh, the, the resources for the population. So they got rid of the, that population in Columbus Park. But we used to watch rats interact quite a bit with pigeons. And it was never quite clear if rats saw pigeons as a food source or as a competitor. <laughs> but there were so many rats. We, I mean, we have in that area seen rats and mice feeding alongside one another. And I guess this is probably the best piece of evidence I have for you. So... Um, Rodents uh, have this phenomenon called muricide. And um, what that means is um, one rodent typically will uh, kill and or devour another rodent. So rats commonly kill mice. They're territorial, why wouldn't they? But in some areas, they were so, the populations were so well fed that uh, we did see rats and mice um, feeding side by side. And that's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it, it shouldn't so rat, happen. So rats are, I mean, obviously they're prey for a lot of things, but they're also predators, right? I mean, they'll, you're saying they'll kill, I mean, are, are they, are, they will kill in one cartoon another. terms, yeah. yeah. but in cartoon terms, are rats predators to mice the way rats are prey to cats, or is it a different phenomenon? Mm. Well, my favorite satisfying answer, uh, we don't know. No, um, <laughs> from, from, yeah, I mean, there could be these like heavily muricidal factions of uh, colonies of rats that just love to go out hunting mice. But I, I just think where rats proliferate, it's where they get free food that's easy to find. It's an open can of beer. It's um, they can sit from. It's um, it's rubbish left out overnight. The smorgasbord of rubbish. It's it's greasy napkins that are blown in the wind. It, it comes to them. The food comes to them. Mm. Why go through all the effort to um, hunt? So, yeah. I, so I wouldn't call rats predators per se, but certainly, and this is another key to rodent control, which we haven't really talked about, um, along with the mathematical formula, you know, you, you remove resources. Um, but certainly, um, uh, rats will control themselves. If the resources are going down, that mathematical formula changes dramatically. Not only will there be fewer rats reproducing, but they will, in effect, turn on one another. 
they will devour and consume themselves as we saw over and over. People thought rats were going crazy, like what's happening during COVID? Something very unnatural is happening. It was not unnatural. Uh, muricide, these animals are programmed for muricide. They'll compete to the death and get a free meal out of it if restaurants are shutting down and they have to move to a new food, food source. That's why so many people um, claimed they were seeing evidence of muricide on the streets, or as they called it, rat cannibalism. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we should we should back up for a second. Like, it's funny. I spend most of my time in social science world, not in biological science world, and and I and I'm not I'm not a social scientist, but I'm surrounded by them, economists, and you know all that. And um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember saying to people, "It's amazing how many poli sci and econ- economics." PhDs we're going to get over the next 10 years based upon all these weird natural experiments in human behavior during the pandemic. You know, I mean, just changes in consumer habits, changes in all sorts of things that, you know, no one could have predicted. And, and it was only until, you know, further into the pandemic when you started to see animal behavior really changing, you know, all that nature is healing stuff and wild boars going into downtown Rome and all that kind of thing. So why don't we just sort of, for the layman, this is something that comes up a lot when you start reading up on rats. The pandemic was a major event, far in our in many ways, a much bigger event for rats than it was for humans, right? Because it just it it changed their natural. I don't want to say natural. It changed their acquired behaviors dramatically. So, can you just sort of talk about what happened and what what you were able to observe or learn from all that? Yeah. Well, so there was definitely some dramatic changes and shifts in uh, rat movements and their behaviors. It does not mean they developed any new behaviors. And um, I want to speak to that because people think they evolved somehow some new (laughs) behavior. They're just expressing behaviors that are already lying there dormant and non-expressed. So they certainly have the ability to do these things long before the pandemic. Um, It's just the lack of food and resources um, causing them to shift their behavior. So what we had where we had populations of rats that were fat and happy. And uh, along with the restaurant, um, they, they can persist quite happily um, in, the, in the rubbish bins of restaurants, the garbage bins. That's all they need. And um, once we shut down those restaurants, it was like, okay, every man, woman, and child for themselves. Okay, and we're speaking of rats, not you know people. Um, and at that point, um, we had Omegas who are already used to leaving, they probably had a bit of an advantage there, didn't they? They can find the resources first. But the other rats now turned on one another. And there was less um, propagation, so the females are probably, now all of a sudden they were less interesting because the rats don't have the same drive to reproduce when there's no food. And so, um, so yeah, there's a dramatic shift in behavior. And so now people's changes included isolation. And once people are isolated, they're spending more time at home, they're eating at home, they're throwing away more rubbish in their home residence. They're adopting pets. They're feeding those pets. Many of them don't really know how to feed pets and contain the food in a container without drawing other animals such as rats. And then they're allowing the pets to um, uh, excrete their wastes outdoors, which is, you know, really a, it's a treat for rats. So now you have these rats that are attracted to migrate. Um, usually short distances, not long distances. I saw media accounts that rats fled the city for the suburbs. 
several uh, you know accounts like that. And, um, I, I think in Melbourne there was an account in Melbourne, Australia, that that rats were um, you know fleeing the, the city. But why flee the city? You just want to go. You want to spend as little energy as possible. And um, and the neighborhoods nearby the restaurants had everything they need. So they migrated. People saw them now because, you know, before we said rats are mostly hidden. Now people are seeing rats for the first time, but they're not displaying, displaying typical rat behaviors. They're displaying rats under duress, those behaviors, which includes the cannibalism. So now you have different, you know, groups of rats. And then so after the pop, after the, uh, so you have new populations of rats that have left old places. So what happens when at the, uh, when the you know, restaurants reopen? Are the rats going to be here or are they going to be over here? Well, probably you still got alphas, betas, and omegas here, don't you? So the rats that are being ejected from these colonies around people's houses are probably at some point going to stumble right back into the restaurants. Hey, we've reopened. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you're going to have uh, established colonies in both places. So I think what we wrote about was, hey, we have no proof. No one has proof about what wild rats are doing, really. But we think we have you know, reason to believe that populations are going to expand. I don't want to say grow. I don't want to say there's going to be more rats, but there's certainly going to be expanding populations because rats are now found in the old places and the new places. And they take, we take risks when you go from one place to the other. So I don't think they're going to pack up and leave these residences with the post-pandemic pets. Because who's giving away their pets? And and then a lot of people are still eating from home. They learn to cook. <laughs> they learn to cook while they're home. And they're like, hey, you save a few bucks. Anyway, and you, you, go, you have this whole thing called inflation happening. And, um, and it's like, okay, eating out is very expensive. I can cook at home and save money. So, um, so yeah, there have been some dramatic social changes that have influenced the lives of rats. So um, I don't mean to turn tables on you here, but like, you said a couple times about their normal environment is when they have all this food stuff, right? Food supply is high, but presumably in the evolutionary environment, you know, in the, on the steps a thousand years ago, food supply was, or, or certainly let's, let's say before the agricultural revolution. So 13,000 years ago, um, food supply was probably less predictable. Um, it, is it right to say, I mean, like maybe the miracidal duress rat is actually the more normal rat and the rats that are, you know, living underneath this barrow in Times Square and having as much calzone <laughs> as they want. That's the weird rat, right? That is the rat that the rat that is can afford its altruism, can afford to like not be hunting mice and all that kind of stuff because you know that's that's it's sort of like sharks sharks will hunt other sharks and they'll do all sorts of bad things uh if they're not well fed but if they're fed they don't do any of that stuff but a well-fed shark is not necessarily the normal shark in evolutionary terms am i making sense here right i i probably would say it's all normal because when a behavior is adaptive you know if that variability is there and the organism with that variability uh, reproduce more and faster, um, then that all of a sudden what was different and odd is now normal and typical. So the wild type behavior might have very well been miracidal on the Mongolian steppes, right? Um, but now that you're here, the normal behavior probably is this 
you know, this is this new thing because they're just evolved. They're adapting. Yeah. So, but evolved or adapting? I, I, I think it's, I, I use them interchangeably because it, they're adapting and it's now the new norm. But I mean, again, put it on. Genetically adapting. Yeah. Scientific literalism, you know, culturally, in effect, culturally adapting is different than, than, Adapting in an evolutionary sense, right? right, I mean, right, these right. Are We're talking things. in an evolutionary sense. They're actual genetics. There's more uh-huh. genes that would express this new behavior than would tend to express the old behavior. But it's still out there. It's still out there. So that if we switched and, you know, there was a nuclear catastrophe, for instance, uh, hypothetically speaking, it would still, that gene would still be probably in the population. And that would reverse. That allele frequency of that gene would change. And now... The new norm is now the old norm again. Right. So, I mean, in sort of Disney terms, you really could take a New York City rat and put him in rural India, and he'd be like the fish out of water with the leather jacket, smoking a cigarette, not knowing how to deal with, like, these rural rats who have different cultures and behaviors, right? I mean, um, because there's still enormous population of rats in non-urban areas that, eat crops and that kind of thing, aren't there? Yeah, and whether they're all Norway rats, I mean, we'll, you know, we try to stick to the same species. Are they Norways or are they um, roof rats or are they some other uh, species that has different behaviors? But uh, really, when we think of species, it's individuals that can reproductively, you know, if, if, they, mm-hmm. if, they, if they're not reproductively isolated, if they can breed together, they're the same species. It's kind of like the, the way we typically think of it. So the question is, can one rat that could breed with another, would it be, different, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Well, my, my favorite satisfying response. I don't know. Yeah, that's, fair. that's all fair. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I had this friend of mine, he's a science writer, Matt Ridley, on to talk about COVID and, and bats once a while ago. And he wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal where he pointed out that the, the number of bats in the world, it's something like they account for something like 10 or 15% of the mammalian population on the planet, which I just think is just way too many bats. Um, but um, in terms of rats, you know, we basically, we boiled them down to like two species or two kinds. It's the roof rats and the, 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 the Norway rat. But there are, in fact, a lot of different kinds of rats, I would assume, right? I mean, there has to be a pretty broad Diverse species, no? Oh, many, many, the many species. Um, and rats are probably one of the most, uh, the most successful groups of mammals in the number of species that are there. So yeah, there are, there are dozens to hundreds, um, depending on if you're a lumper or a splitter, taxonomically speaking. But typically in the urban areas, we typically, you know, Norway's have outcompeted so many other species of rats. They're, they're the bully rats, if you will. And um, where, where Norway's and roof rats co-occur, Norway's usually kind of win the battle. I've got a uh-huh. colleague in Tokyo and he has both, you know, but there's sort of, uh, there's this niche partitioning where Norway's take the low ground and, and roofies take the high ground. Um, and what are the roofies eating? Yeah. So fruits, nuts, um, uh-huh. you know, they're opportunities like rats and they can, they can um, eat a variety of foods, insects, fruits, nuts, but they're attracted very differently. They're not going to come, you know, um, they're not going to be seen as often. You don't yeah. look up. We spend most of our time looking down when we walk, right. and that's why. Yeah, yeah. But these are mainly Norway rats and roof rats are the primary in the urban areas. Do you know if? Because I meant to ask this from the beginning, but um, so the Norway rat, which 
got called the Norway rat because the English thought it came from Norway, but it didn't. Um, that was a poor Norway gets stuck with Norway. Right, right. Um, right. But um, do we know, like, prior, like, are there species of, are there rodents that um, the Norway rat com- c- competed out of existence? Like, prior to the Columbian exchange, were there a bunch of other cool rats that just aren't here anymore because the Norway rat just outcompeted them? Uh, you would definitely have to ask my colleagues on that one, the, the geneticists, but not none that I, I've heard of. I said I was going to put a pin in it, so let's put it, let's, let's take the pin out now. Just mechanically, why is it so hard to study these animals? I mean, we study, we study critters at the bottom of the ocean. We study all sorts of interesting animals in weird places between drones and microchips and, and, and a thousand other things. How come we live in such terrible ignorance about these animals that, that live all around us? Uh, because they're hidden and um, there's a social uh, fear, uh, phobia of rats, and people don't want to admit when they have them. They're worried about fines. Um, for people who want to study them, we all have to have permissions to study, a number of permissions. We have to have permission from the, the landowner, which Maybe an individual who's afraid of getting sued or fined, who doesn't even want to admit they have rats, if they even know they have rats. Maybe they want to blame it on their neighbors. So there's all these social issues, too. And if a city owns the rats, well, good luck with that, because someone's going to be responsible for those rats. And then if you really study rats, you can't. I mean, we do put a camera on rats and learn a lot, but we like to microchip them first so that we can know which rat we're looking at repeatedly. To do that is very risky. We have to be very careful about where we release rats. If you release a rat in the middle of um, Times Square, just so you can study it and someone gets bitten or it passes on you know, toxoplasma or some really uh, not nice disease, but you're liable. And so um, there's a lot of issues of public liabilities, health and safety, the health of the researcher, because rats are a little bit vicious. Um, and, um, and, and rats are really hardy animals. They're really hard to anesthetize. They're very difficult to control, if you will. They're not like lab rats, lab rats, which have been bred. You can handle them and pet them and, and um, do whatever you want to and manipulate their bodies. Wild rats, you can rarely do that with. So those are just a few reasons, but yeah, uh, I can just tell you, uh, whenever I tell people rat researcher, it's like, Ooh, ick, I'm scared. Go away. It's not like, please, I know someone's got rats and he really wants you to come study his rats. Yeah. What about, but like sewer rats? I mean, there, there are a lot of sewer rats. And you would think that New York City probably for all, you know, I mean, you probably have a much better guess at the numbers, but all in rats probably cost New York City hundreds of millions of dollars, billions. I mean, I can't, I, I, like when you start thinking about all the things that rats do in terms of the preventative stuff, the healthcare costs, all the rest, you would think that they would have a pretty well-vested interest in knowing more about rats and would say, you want to go down in the sewers? You know, bring your own hazmat suit, have at it. I mean, like, I mean, I, I, I mean, I get like, like it's hard to get radio signals from, from sewers and stuff, but um, uh, you would think that New York City would be very eager to, because they don't want to go down in the sewers, but Sounds like you or one of your interns is willing to go down in there. So, you know, why wouldn't they want you to? As a guy who has asked for access to our subways, okay? As a guy who has asked for access, the keys to the city on a number of occasions and the difficulty and the hoops that have to be jumped, um, I left thoroughly dejected and depressed 
because there really was, you know, I thought if anyone could do it, I could do it because I had a little bit of a background in it and, and you got to have experience before you do it. And so few people have experience. I thought, well, this is our chance. And, um, and it led to a lot of tears and frustration and, and uh, if you will, because there's really no burgeoning population of rats that's just begging to be studied. I think you'd almost have to artificially create a colony of rats and then good luck with that because if one of those escapes, you know, we're back to the being sued for millions and millions and we'd rather deal with the devastation rats can cause. But one thing you didn't mention, um, uh, fire hazards. I mean, rats are suspected, you know, fire marshals are, are um, you have a lot more uh, education on the matter than I do, have uh, been uh, cited as saying maybe, maybe is it 10 or 20% of all fires of unknown origin could have been started from rats. But it's really difficult to prove. Because they're chewing on wires, exposing wires, and that kind of stuff. Right, right exactly. And of course, we all know what's happening with rats and automobiles, you know. And um, so, and we know it's, uh, we know it's logical that it happens, but it's very hard to prove in the in you know that fire was started from rats. And of course, the diseases. How do you know if you have leptospirosis and you go to the doctor and and you're, um, you know, they treat you for that? Uh, they do the blood tests and they confirm you have it, but they don't confirm where you have where you picked it up from. And and they may go back and they may triangulate information. You know, the social scientists like to use or triangulation. They may work out. This person has had, you know, 25 citations for rats being on the property and they have leptospirosis. Like, okay, I think there's a relationship there, but it's not proven, you know. Um, uh, Correlation isn't necessarily causation. And because of that, um, until, you know, people start keeping those numbers and then making those numbers accessible to researchers, then I don't see really what we're going to be able to do. But it scares me in a way, like I'm not an over alarmist, but on one hand, you know, maybe after a glass of wine on the, on the weekend, maybe I sit and I worry about the fact that Norway rats are called sewer rats for a reason. They like to vertically migrate as it gets colder in the Northeast and they go down deeper and they, and once they get down in the subways, of course, they, they can spread out and, Guess what they're coming into contact with in the sub, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the sewers. Um, and guess where they go? You know, this is public drainage systems. They come out through the storm drain basins or they come out through pipes and they can, they can travel through pipes up into residences, up into high-rise apartments. They're amazing swimmers and they can gulp air. Bins of pipes are amazing. When you have water flowing through the lumen of a pipe, it's not 100% filled. Right. And when you go around bins, the water dips slightly in those mm-hmm. bins so up and down and up and down. So rats are swimming up against the current and they stop and they take a breath in the bend of the pipe and they keep swimming up. And if you ever see on National Geographic, they've got the most amazing animation of um, rats, how a rat swims through the pipes from the sewers up into someone's apartment, per se. But um, it, it is mildly concerning, even alarming sometimes, depending on my mood, to know that we have all these diseases and it's being stirred up in a like this little mixture, like this new little, you know, um, 
the interactions of all these organisms and path, potential pathogens. And, in, uh, in the rat gut, in effect, right? Ex- exactly, or, or, or elsewhere within the rat. In the lungs, it could be in the lungs. It could be the rats mechanically carrying them. So sometimes we think, like with COVID, we weren't sure if rodents could carry COVID or not, because at first we didn't know they could serum convert. But um, what was going on in, in some cases were um, we think rats could have been picking up just like we were mechanically transmitting from one spot to the other. So if we measure a prevalence of disease COVID by looking at sewer samples and rats not only spend time in the city, they're literally named for being sewer rats, right? I mean, why don't we make the connection that rats not only could be, you know, they're, they're important organism that these pathogens could be, uh, you know, evolved in or be transmitted by or both. So I think we do need to pay attention to rats without fearing them. We need to pay attention to them. And we do need to worry more about their um, control. And, and I don't mean new poisons. I don't mean blaming them for our bad hygiene. I mean um, limiting our wastes and, um, and, and taking huge, if necessary, financial um, investments to limit wastes. I mean, your basic argument, I, and if I'm being giving a short shrift, you know, correct me, but is that the only real reliable way we're ever going to control rat populations is by controlling their food supply, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the one variable we can change. And that means tighter lids and garbage cans. That means better protocols for food waste. Um, I mean, picking up dog poop has to help, right? I mean, like, like the, the, did we see in the 70s in New York when they passed the pooper scooper laws, changes in rat behavior? I know you weren't around to study rats at the time, but <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's interesting. I don't know of anything like rat research. Wild rat research has really taken the back seat to laboratory rat research, and that's the other issue you ask. Well, why? What's another reason for the difficulty of studying rats? Well, it's not like we found this new species of owl or or salamander or something that's exotic and different. It's like, well, you know, a funding institution that, that helps support this research asks themselves, wait, have we done rat research? Oh, let's go to the scientific databases. Let's go to Google Scholar and find out rat. Oh, wait, there's only 750 million papers on rats. I'm sure one of those has the information we need. And it's because something like 0. .0000, you know, ad infinitum, one of those papers, percent of those papers is basically on wild rat populations or wild rat behaviors. So, right. So, as you were saying before, just to make this point clear, because I think it's a really interesting one, most of those 750 million, and we're just using yeah. a hypothetical number, <laughs> sure, right? Sure, sure. But, like, out of those crazy number of, of papers on rats, those papers really aren't on rats. They're on human beings, and we're using rat anatomy or rat DNA or rat responses to illuminate things about ourselves, not really about rats because the rats they're using Correct. really are sort of they're not eunuchs but they're just sort of this own sort of genetic cul-de-sac kind of rat they're not real it's rats. something we've created sure yeah and it's funny so hopefully look i mean there are a lot of there are a lot of policymakers, a lot of congressmen and senators and that kind of stuff who uh listen to this podcast maybe someone will come up with a um you know say this is the, this is an issue that needs better funding i'll, I'll you know i'll I'll, fo- I'll i'll forward those emails to you um, but I, I, so I have to ask, uh, all right. So about the, some urban legend stuff. Okay. Cause, uh, uh, 12 year old Jonah would never forgive middle-aged Jonah for not asking about this. And, and just 
to get out of the way, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade and, and I'm an editor. And the piece that you said you were mildly misquoted in uh, was in Salon. And this just, this picks on, I don't mean to pick on the author. It was an interesting piece. It could have used some better editing, but it, it was an interesting piece. Um, but one of, one of my many peeves about sort of bad writing is when people say, according to urban legend X, and then rather than say, of course, the urban legend is not true. They say, well, it only happens rarely. And so, which doesn't mean it's an urban legend anymore. Right. And, and like urban legend is supposed to be a synonym for myth. And so this, there's a sentence in this piece that says urban legend dictates that wild urban rats can jump at you and bite your face if you are close enough. While it does happen occasionally, this is merely a rat's reaction to a fight or flight scenario. Well, uh, that's not reassuring because like, <laughs> you tell me it's an urban legend that rats bite people in the face and they say, well, yeah, it does happen. It's just kind of rare. <laughs> you know, that, that, so anyway, how often are there actual rat attacks on humans and, and what, wh why do they happen? I mean, I, I assume fight or flight is part of it, right? But like, um, is it because they're altered from rat poison? Is it, do they carry rabies? You don't hear about rats and rabies very much. Right, right, right. So um, I, you know, I was a little bit familiar with the NYCHA, I guess, New York City Housing Authority at some stage and, and the difficulty they had controlling rats and the people who lived in NYCHA properties in um, the Bronx in particular um, had a number of rats in their homes. And um, I saw some videos and from among those people, I think there were reports that uh, there were there were children that were bitten. Um, uh, I also had a reporter and, and, you know, I'm just taking up face value who contacted me because she claims to have met an individual whose child was, was, uh, you know, their toes were bitten in their sleep from rats. And I have no reason to, you know, suspect that couldn't happen. So, um, yeah, I mean, when you have a lot of people and a lot of animals and a lot of people encroaching on animals and making them feel like you said, fight or flight, um, I mean, I've been bitten personally, so um, luckily I had on some uh, gauntlets at the time. Yeah, but you're reaching out for rats. I mean, like, I expect you to get bitten. I'm re exactly. Uh, but there will be other people who are doing the same. I mean, you know, some people see a little animal and they're like, oh, it's so cute. And this animal may be a little sickly or it may have rabies. And rats do get rabies. I don't I don't hear a lot of, I guess, rat, people are so scared of rats. If a rat had rabies, if they see a rat, they're going to run anyway. <laughs> so they're not going to approach it. So I'm not really sure if that's the reason we don't hear more about it but yeah they certainly okay and so then there's the and i've done my research on this a little bit so i kind of know what your answer is going to be but there's the issue of the rat king um <laughs> and i know people ask you about the rat king um according to legend it's uh rats that get their tails all caught up until they merge into one soup multi-eyed multi-mouthed super rat um do you have any idea where it comes from is there any truth to it to your knowledge whatsoever i mean like yeah yeah it, it is it is true my understanding um and i did um this came from the media thank god for the media because they really um when they come to me and they tell me this is what people are interested in what readers are interested in, i sometimes take that and feed that back into my own you know uh lines of inquiry uh because it is interesting uh but um we we hit the databases and we did find some papers and um you know, I can send you a picture of a Rat King that uh, we do not think it's staged. It's, uh, I think the paper was maybe from the 1930s or mm -hmm. 40s. 
And um, there was, you know, um, maybe multiple pictures of rat kings. And it's just from, you know, rats. I guess there's so many resources available that they live under tight conditions and their tails just intertwined and would come interlocked. It's something that normally wouldn't happen in nature, but when there are so, so many resources and so many animals confined to a, to a small space, you could get something like that. So yeah, I, I, my understanding, wrecking is true. Just so we, we want to be, we, we want to educate, we want to shed light, not heat um, on the issue of the rat king and all these things. It is, it is true that the rats, that it has happened where rats' tails get all intertwined, but the it doesn't make them any kind of super rat or king of rats or any of that kind of thing, right? It's just, <laughs> there's no, they're not becoming a super villain of some kind or boss king of the rat world. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 indeed. They would just be rats that were, uh, you know, very carefully either pulling their tails out or gnawing their tails off or competing and killing one another until, you know, they're released, uh, you know, until the tail's released. You know, growing up, in New York City, you would always hear people talk about. I saw a cat. I saw a rat the size of a cat, and all that kind of thing. And in the wild, I'm sure you can overstuff a rat in the lab beyond all definitions of rodent corpulence. But like, how, like, how big are the biggest uh, sewer rats or Norway rats that you've seen, or can you expect to find? Yeah. So I think the majority of people who said the, the, the rats are big as cats, they're actually, uh, when you see an animal, obviously, you know, we, we tend to be um, conservative. You know, do we need to be fear? It's better to have a false positive than a false negative. It's better to see an organism and go, ah, it's a threat to me and run from it rather than not run from a potential threat that really is a threat, right? So that's part of the problem. And I'm sure you read this, that it's the rats when it um, really, you know, when it uh, its fur stands on end, that it actually appears bigger than it is. So, um, so no, there are no rats that I've ever seen the size of cats. And that's actually impossible. It doesn't stand to reason because we talked about how shy rats are and how they want to stay out of the people's few, right? So if rats in New York really were, quote, as big as cats, it would be very, uh, very unselective. Um, it would be very disadvantageous to the animal. It couldn't hide as well. They would be predated. Now I'll take the risks to take a big rat because there's so much meat on them, on their bones. It would be worth it for a multiple red dogs or multiple coyotes or multiple terriers or even, you know, um, so uh, it just really wouldn't make sense. But obviously the reason is, A, people, you know, the the, the evolution of our own mind, uh, and B, the fact that they just, um, you know, this, this response, this reflex of the first standing on end um, is causing them to look bigger than it is, yeah. And so, again, as animal guy, it drives me crazy when I hear the stories about mountain lions or or hawks and, you know, other raptors, coyotes, I get a little less concerned about, um, but um, uh, dying from eating rats that are full of rat poison. Um, is there any progress on how to deal with that? Or are there any organic poisons that only work on rats? Um, is you know, also like, as you say, I take your word for it, that rat poison is probably a really awful way to go for a rat. And even though I very much don't want rats in my own home and all that, and I will take extraordinary measures. I, animal suffering, full stop, bothers me. So, like, 
Is there any progress on, on, the, on any of those fronts? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of sticky traps where animals literally will gnaw off whatever part is stuck to the, um, you know, the trap to get re- released. I've seen it personally and I've, I've hated it. Um, and of course, they're identified two to three days of bleeding out internally because, your body, the, 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 because you have a blood thinner, if you will, and the blood can no longer clot, digestion can't take place, you bloat. And it's agonizing, and it's all, why is this happening? Oh, because of our irresponsibility. So, um, yeah, I do have some some feelings about that, having, you know, worked with rats for a few years. But also, um, is there anything, you know, on the rat front, is there a better way to control them other than, you know, the food source, stopping the food source? And, um, but, but you know where I want to go with this? I just want to say that, we almost have this perfect storm of social conditions happening right now. You have the, the, the research occurring with rat intelligence being shown to be more and more um, real, if you will. They're shown to have emotional contagion. And, and what that means is feelings. Some people are saying sentience, like pets. They're, they're feeling animals. And so the more of that we're getting, the more hesitant we are to make them suffer with rat poisons. And, um, but at the same time, we're getting more and more rats. And, and so it's this interesting dilemma of where things could potentially get worse and worse if we don't find some clever ways of, of discussing it and, and starting the discussion and then dealing with it. And hopefully understanding that little mathematical formula that has to have resources to drive the formula and just cutting that resource off no matter what we, how much money we have to spend. Because no, I mean, the best I've seen, there are like traps you can put up where rats will get inside and they'll drown like a fly trap, you know, where rats will, um, they'll try to take something on, uh, on top of a barrel and the barrel's filled with water and um, a rat won't be able to jump outside the barrel once it slides in the barrel. Like there's those types of traps. But again, that doesn't stop the, um, that doesn't stop the equation. If the resources are there, they're just going to, I don't care if you get a thousand rats from, from drowning them in a barrel, the the issue is still um, the resources. And then we do know people are working with fertility treatments for rats which means rats are literally drinking water that has been treated with a... Uh, Birth control. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and once that occurs, um, this particular group of animals, as long as they're alive, they'll keep other rats from coming into the territory if resources are somewhat controlled. So they literally drink themselves sterile. So it's an immunocontraceptive. But it's hard to feel great about that because it only works when there's a resident group of rats and fewer resources but it's part of the pitch like it's something that conversation is happening and i'm certainly supportive of that research it's just it's hard to feel satisfied um is there any city in the world that has really effectively done an amazing job with rat population you, you know I'm, I'm embarrassed not to not to not to know for certain because i have heard of certain areas where they have uh, exterminated rats so there's this island uh, it's the south pacific was it maybe off of Tasmania? Where, where is this? Where, where am I thinking of? Wasn't there one of the Galapagos? I think it was one of the Galapagos Islands where they were eating the eggs of these endangered birds. And it took them forever, right. but they finally got the rats off. Um, I can't remember. I, I think that was, that was so resource. And if, if it's the same thing that I'm thinking of, it was so resource intensive on an island. I don't know that it's replicable in Chicago. 
right? Or Paris. Exactly. And that's the thing. It is on an island, uh, you know, where everything was controlled coming in and out. And so, yeah, I don't know that we can duplicate that, but I have heard of situations where, you know, they've had success. Um, but again, it's like every citizen's involved kind of thing. Like you said, everybody's aware of it. It is an awareness thing, isn't it? It's, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, it's like I sometimes compare social hygiene to, um, you know, our own. Uh, if there's an awareness of it, we're brushing our teeth, we're stopping the cavities. The rats are analogous to the cavities. If you've ever been to uh, Aspen, Bozeman, any of these Western cities that have real problems keeping bears at bay for the same reasons that they have, you, New York has problems with rats, people leaving food out. And the bears come in. You know, they have the special bear garbage cans that are very difficult for bears to open. Um, there's all sorts of public awareness things about food waste and food hygiene and all that kind of stuff. It seems to me like that's a place to start where you just sort of have a public information campaign of the sort where you can actually, my guess is, I mean, again, you'd know better than I, but my guess is it's a no-brainer that more people have died because of rats in any given year than have died from bear attacks in the last hundred. It's just bear attacks are scarier. Um, um, and, you know... The, and it's harder to prove. And it's harder right, to prove. Right. But as a statistical matter, yeah. it would just make total sense that... It, yeah. It, it, it's a, it, would, it would totally yeah. make sense. Uh, and, and so um, awareness is the main thing. And then I, I, I'm really big on public incentives. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm not so much uh, a punitive kind of a, a, a person. I don't want to, like, punish people who are, are yeah. uh, that may be necessary at some stage to find people and, and so forth. But I would be more apt to reward people for good behavior that can influence uh, a, a broader area. So I, I love the idea of neighborhood sentinels. I kind of, that's my little spiel. Um, neighborhood centers. These are rat patrols, paid. right? Rat patrols, people who are paid to pick up rubbish, people who are paid to take uh, garbage in from the side of the streets. I know, like, New York can't just, like, reinvent the way they collect garbage, but it would be really resource intensive and it would be a dramatic major thing to, like, put everything under steel containers that couldn't be, you know, encroached on by rats. But if they're going to leave them out in just plain bags, I love the idea of, in particular, hot spots having people at least pilot to see how it goes. Put some serious money behind it and have people uh, go out in the evenings and collect this and put it under a shed and guard the shed. You know, close the doors. It's a, where, whatever you have to do to it, it's going to be worth it. I don't, you know, whatever it is, because if you can break up those populations, maybe you make progress. And maybe that's a little, um, maybe I'm being idealistic, but what else do we have other than I, I, being idealistic? We have to start from somewhere. And um, I, I don't want to say we need to start finding people because a napkin, a grease-filled napkin blew off of their pizza slice. And now that's, you know, blew right into a, a den of rats. Yeah, I think mean, because rats can, they, they're more omnivorous than any other mammal I can think of, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an old, there's an old saying, they'll chew the leather right off your shoes if, if you know, they've got nothing else. So, yeah. Oh, and the last thing I learned, I mean, I, I learned a lot other stuff, but the last thing just worth mentioning in one of the pieces you wrote, and we'll put it in the show notes, you say that their teeth measure something like 5.5 on the mole scale, which is, or do I have that right? What geologists? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I haven't memorized the number. I usually, I look it up when I need it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like 5.5. It's, it's a geologist term for the measuring the hardness of minerals and yes. iron comes in just slightly below, right? 
Um, so they can truly true through anything. Right, but has some effort. So the question is, can they do it? Yes. Will they do it? Did they take the time and the effort to do it? Or would they move on? So I still feel good about even softer metals better than, you know. And, and one thing about metals, though, it's not just that they, they have to have motivation to chew through it. So if we can stop these scents from spreading from an individual source, like, uh, and I, I think that's something we should make clear, and we should have made it clear when we showed that, that, that hardness scale, was that if you stop the scents from dispersing, even a plastic container would probably work if olfaction didn't come into play, if the animal's ability to sniff volatile organic constituents from that food were somehow removed. Uh, and I, I know we're going over time and my people are going to be mad at me, but like I have lots of rat questions. So one other one, <laughs> um, uh, I've read, it's, it's come up in popular culture a few times, that rats can sense illness in other rats and they won't mate with them if they think that they have some problem. Is that a real thing or is that just like, is it all boiled down to symmetry if it's got a really symmetrical face? That's all they need to know? Uh, correlation causation, uh, but it certainly stands to reason. It's reasonable to think that it's true, and I accept it as a truth because animals can sniff disease. I mean, even among humans, animals can sniff disease. So I really believe, I mean, even if you have house cats and pet cats sniffing one another, it's really, that's how they communicate and recognize, and I do think they can tell if one another's sick. And it would be a waste of my time if there's two females there and one female has um, toxoplasma and the other one doesn't. Hey, you know what toxoplasma causes rats to do? It causes them to like be attracted to potential predators. <laughs> I don't want to waste my time. But then if you're a rat, if you're a male, you can actually, you, you know, you've not lost much, right? If you try to reproduce with every single one of them. So there's that side of it as well. But certainly if you've got a choice between one or the other, I would certainly go with the one that was healthy. Um, all right. Well, maybe we'll just do it to be continued because... Um, I could go on for a very long time, but uh, Michael Parsons, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your interest in rats and keep those great questions coming. <laughs> okay. So Dr. Parsons has left the studio and um, uh, my thanks to Guy for finding the rat guy. Um, uh, I was just telling uh, Michael after the we stopped recording that this was great, but now I got to get a, a rat geneticist on here because I have um, all sorts of questions about rat evolution that we have to, that we have to get into. Um, I'm also interested in, in, in um, how much evolution is going on right now because of changed environments for, for other animals as well. So maybe we'll do something on that. Um, if you're someone in the policymaking community, you know, uh, you want to reach out and, and fund more rat research, you know, you can get in touch with me and I'll forward it along. And um, for those of you who are like, why did I just listen to 70 minutes of rat talk? Because I want to talk about rats and I make no apologies. Um, and uh, other than that, we are working. I, again, I apologize for the audio from last Friday on the solo remnant. We are well aware of it. Um, we are trying to figure out a good new travel mic for me um, and all sorts of other things. And um, uh, but my apologies, we really want everything to be as good as it possibly can be around here. And, um, and be advised, we heard, we heard your complaints and they're all justified. And, uh, other than that, um, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.